You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and I would like to welcome you to this Investing Matters episode, um, which I have the huge privilege of speaking with Brian Peroldi, a financial educator, YouTuber, and author. Brian has written over 3,000 articles on stocks, investing, and personal finance for Motley Fool. And he's also, as I just said, the author of the best-selling book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything you should have been taught about investing at school but weren't, which was published in 2022. Brian, thank you ever so much for joining me. Please tell our audience first, whereabouts are you in America today, please? Well, thank you for having me, Peter. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I call uh, Rhode Island home, which is a part of uh, southern New, uh, New England, so in the northeastern part of the United States. Excellent. So what, we're, we're in England, so we're always talking about the weather. So what sort of weather are you having right now over there? Cold, uh, on the border between rainy and, uh, and snowy. Uh, I prefer snowy, but it has to be cold enough for it to get there. But typical, typical New England uh, weather, uh, cold and, uh, and, and miserable if you're not into that kind of thing. I happen to like uh, the, uh, the cold weather that we see uh, in, in the wintertime, but I understand why many people don't. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I, I, what, I, what I like is about when I watch the, um, the American football and I see them taking the snow off, <laughs> off the pitch to actually go on there to play, I'm like, ooh, it does look bitter there. Okay, Brian, I want to jump straight in if we, if we can regarding this interview because we, we, we're, we're going to be pressed for time to get all the numerous questions I've got for you. Um, what was your first exposure to investing? And can you follow that by just telling us about your first exposure to the Dow Jones Index? as well as a young man? Sure. Like many people, I had a vague idea or I had heard of the stock market growing up, but I was never taught anything about what it is or how it worked. And to me, the stock market was just the boring part of the newspaper that was in the way of the comics. Um, but I had, uh, my father was, um, he was an accountant uh, he rose to the, uh, become a CFO at a uh, publicly uh, traded company. So he was, he dabbled in the stock market. He wasn't super well versed in uh, analyzing businesses or, or learning, uh, knowing how to really uh, invest the right way. Uh, but he did dabble a little bit in the stock market and he would occasionally um, interact with us and show us about stocks that he was, uh, he was buying. I, I remember one time he, he showed us a stock that was worth like $20 a share. And he said, hey, if this gets to $25 a share, uh, I'll buy you guys dirt bikes. Uh, so we would check that stock price like every day. Uh, it never got to $25 a share. Um, uh, so we never got our, our dirt bikes. But I, that was the first time that I was looking at stock prices and like hoping that get, they would go in a certain uh, direction. Uh, but I can tell you my first time, my first exposure to the Dow Jones Industrial Average um, happened when I was a, a caddy at a, um, a prestigious uh, a golf course. So I was caddying around at a, um, at, at a golf tournament. And at the turn, so after the ninth hole, a couple of the golfers went in, uh, got, some, got some lunch and came out. And one of the golfers said to the other, he says, you're not going to believe this. Uh, the Dow Jones is up 300 points uh, today. 
And the other golfers were like, you know, high-fiving each other. They were like really excited. Um, I had no clue uh, what the Dow Jones was. I had no clue uh, what going up or down uh, meant, but I could tell that they were excited uh, about it. And I was like, well, this probably increases my chances of, of getting a, uh, a good tip um, at, at the end of this. But I, I think that that's a fairly common experience that a lot of people have. They hear terms like Dow Jones Industrial Average or S&P 500 or, or FTSE, and they've heard those terms many times, but I can pretty much guarantee that the majority of people that have heard those terms have no clue what those things are. Absolutely. And before we go any further, did you get a good tip that day when you were caddying? Yes, I did. Uh, I think I made about uh, $40 or, or something like that, which we know in the mid-90s was much more money than it is today. Absolutely. No, I'm pleased that you did. Now, um, so what was your first exposure to penny stocks, Brian? Or cent stocks, should we say? Yeah, so so penny stocks. So when I first started investing, when I first became interested in investing was 2004. Uh, this was post me graduating from college. And despite the fact that I graduated with a degree in business, I was still completely ignorant about what the stock market was, what a stock was, how compounding works, how to make money as investing. So all of that was completely foreign to me. And again, I say that as someone that studied business um, in, in college. So my dad was cold called by penny stock brokers uh, when he was making in investments and he was attracted to the idea of low dollar price stocks um, uh, naturally because he was a beginning um, investor. So when I graduated from college in 2004 and I finally had a little bit of money to put into the market, you know, just a few hundred um, dollars at the time, not a lot of money in absolute terms, but it was a lot of money to me um, uh, at, at the time. I thought that the way that you made money in the stock market was by buying a stock for a dollar per share and selling it a day later for a dollar fifty uh, per per share. That to me was what investing was because the stock market just seemed like a random number generator that just went up and down every single day. And I naturally thought that the best quote unquote investors out there didn't buy stocks like Coca-Cola or Microsoft or, or Apple. Uh, they bought stocks that traded for 50 cents and then they uh, got a 50% return in a matter of days by selling it later for 60 cents or 75 cents. And that's what I first started uh, to do. As you can imagine, um, I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue how to do research. I had no clue why there was any connection between the company um, and its stock price. So my results were absolutely abysmal. Just about everything that I bought uh, went down. I lost money far more, far more often uh, than, than, I, than I made money. And my natural inclination was to just view the stock market as a big gambling uh, machine. And which, to be fair, if you were investing, and I put that in air quotes, investing the way that I was when I first started, it basically was a giant uh, legal gambling machine. I love that response, Brian, and appreciate your candor with that. So, and you've already touched on it already. Just tell us the nuances of the major lessons that you learned that you thought going in, I know what the market is about. And then during that early period, what you came out learning, you went, duh, this is actually what it is about. 
Why? I've learned so many lessons the, the hard way. To me, there's no better way to learn a financial lesson than to lose a bunch of money in a short period of time. Uh, because those lessons that I learned when I first uh, started, um, they only cost me a, probably a few thousand dollars in absolute terms, but they forever seared <laughs> hard lessons, hard one lessons uh, into, my, uh, into my brain. Uh, so thankfully, uh, one thing that I am proud of myself that I did was while I was losing money and having having bad results, that did not uh, dampen down my desire to learn about what the stock market uh, was. So I immediately started to uh, read and educate myself in any way that I could about what investing was. So at the time, the primary way to really learn that kind of stuff was by reading books. So I started to check out and buy books that were by and about uh, Warren Buffett, uh, The Motley Fool, uh, some personal finance books. I read books about real estate. I looked into owning and operating a laundromats and storage facilities. I basically looked for any way that I could figure out how can I take the money that I have and grow my net worth um, uh, over time. As I studied what the stock market was, I, of course, came across uh, Peter Lynch. And that studying Peter Lynch was the first time that I actually started to understand, oh, there's actually a connection between the company that is behind the stock and its stock price. And I want to actually buy companies that make product and services that I know about and those companies make profits and if those profits increase over time so too will the stock price so many of those things that I learned the hard way are completely counterintuitive to you just looking at the stock or pulling up a stock price on your phone uh, for the very first time it's only really after zoom zooming out and studying businesses and their stock prices that you can really start to draw uh, some some conclusions about the right way uh, to invest but the wrong way to invest, I learned very quickly, you have to do more research than just knowing the stock price. You have to understand how to read financial statements. You have to understand how to uh, dig into SEC filings. You have to understand what business competitive advantage is. You have to understand the risks that are going on. I mean, all of those lessons that are obvious uh, to me today, I had to learn the slow, painful, hard way. Oh, mate, brilliant, brilliant reply. I love that. And uh, I think that the beauty of what you just said um, to to encompass it all is the fact that we learn twice as much from the mistakes than we do from our successes. And, um, you know, this is why you're here now. You know, this is why you've got a best-selling book, all the lessons that you've learned, and now you're paying it forward. So thank you for sharing that. Now, you, you also, um, I know, were investing throughout the dot-com boom and crash, Brian. And you, you always, I think, have spoken very, very candidly about some of the, the mistakes that you've that you that you that have occurred whilst you've been investing and your lessons from that. What is your what is the one mistake that you made very 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 early on that you can say to yourself you've never since made since? Well, I would love to tell myself that I've never since made it since, but I can tell you the one mistake that I made early on that I still kick myself uh, to to this day. So. 
I have made so many mistakes um, investing, and I think that I am a dramatically better investor today uh, than I was uh, previously. And I've bought stocks that have gone down 99%. Uh, I've used leverage uh, to to buy uh, stocks that then uh, went down uh, drastically. I've gone for income stocks. I've gone for uh, high growth uh, stocks. I, I've I've gone for stocks that were doing out stock based compensation. I've gone for money losing companies. So I've I've tried uh, tons of different investing things. The most and the biggest investing mistake that I've ever made that has impacted my net worth negatively the most by far is selling a great company early, period, full stop, end of story. Because you can make lots of investments that go down 80% or 90% and you can lose thousands of dollars on, on doing that. But I have personally sold stocks that then went, then went on to go up 10, 20, or 50 fold. And by selling those stocks Early, I lost out on tremendous amounts of long-term wealth because I was in a rush to take a profit. A, a real quick uh, example, I owned Microsoft at $20 per share. Microsoft, like big, boring, stable, profitable, dominant uh, Microsoft. And when it hit $24 per share, I sold it, all of it and took, took a profit. Uh, so I earned a 20% return in a matter of months. And last I checked, Microsoft was at $400 per share. So I missed out on a, on a, um, a 20X return on Microsoft, on Microsoft, simply because I was in a rush uh, to take a profit. Now that is a stark example or reminder to me that the biggest mistake, the biggest investing mistake that you can make um, is to sell a future winner early because you're in a rush to take a profit. So now I have an extreme aversion to selling. When I buy a stock, I have an extreme aversion and my natural bias is to hold. Even when I think that holding is a mistake, what I've learned is that if I hold 10 companies that I think I should sell or they want to sell, if I'm right nine times out of 10, but that 10th time I sell Microsoft early or I sell Dexcom early or I sell Google as early, those other nine good decisions don't matter because selling that one mega winner uh, will, will cost me so much wealth that I now have a stream, extreme aversion uh, to selling any stock that I own. Brilliant reply. Thank you ever so much. Now, I know from looking at your records as well, though, Brian, you've got a fantastic record for hitting those significant multi-bagger stocks. And you've got several within your own portfolio as we speak that have returned to in excess of 1,500%. So 15 times, 15X your returns. Um, please can you tell us some of those stocks and the characteristics that you initially identified that enabled you to have those winning stocks? So I own, yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to get about 10, 10 stocks. Uh, I've bought, I've bought over a hundred stocks uh, in my life and uh, 10 of them have really delivered the lion's share of my investing gains um, over time. I've had plenty of base hits and doubles to use a, a baseball uh, uh, analogy, but it's really a handful of stocks that have been 
10, 20, or 50 baggers that have driven the lion's share of my gates over, over time. Uh, so currently, my number one holding as of right now, and this does change day to day based on, on prices, is a company called Mercado Libre. Uh, the ticker symbol there is M-E-L-I. I first came across this stock uh, more than 10 years ago when it was profiled um, in a Motley Fool newsletter that I was uh, subscribed to. Um, it was a founder-led company, and at the time, it was essentially the eBay of Latin America. So you could go to this site and you could buy and sell uh, goods. Now, a nice feature about a site like eBay is there's something called network effects built right in. Uh, buyers naturally want to go to the platform that has the most sellers. Sellers naturally want to go to the platform that has the most buyers. And that dynamic kind of takes a winner-take-all um, dynamic in that marketplace. Now, I like that the company was in a fast-growing market. Uh, the number of internet users in Latin America was small on a percentage basis, but growing uh, 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 rapidly. Uh, the area was quickly developing, and per capita income was quickly uh, rising. Uh, the company was founded by someone that was trained at, uh, at Stanford and, and had a huge ownership uh, uh, percentage. Um, the company had great margins. It was free cash flow positive, and the biggest pus of all was that that they were rolling out adjacent businesses that complemented their core offering. So when I bought them, they were essentially um, uh, eBay, and they had a small little business that was very much like PayPal. So it was a way to pay for uh, buyers and sellers to pay e each other. That business has grown at a hyper uh, growth rate and now is actually the dominant position, uh, the dominant way uh, that investors have made money off of that stock. They've added in advertising uh, capabilities. They've added in shipping uh, uh, capabilities. They've added in business services uh, to there. So it was a company that, a lot like Amazon, started out doing one thing and has since spawned off many businesses that have opened up revenue opportunities for the business over time. And, and for that reason, it's, it's grown tremendously uh, since, since I bought it and now it's my number one holding. So the things that I look for there would be dominant uh, market position or strong uh, moat, uh, founder-led leadership, good economics, and optionality or the ability for a company to roll out new products and new services that open up new revenue opportunities. When I look at my list of biggest winners of all time, of all time uh, Almost without exclusion, those companies that uh, have those traits built in. Brilliant. Thank you for that reply. And you've written extensively about this on the over 3,000 articles that you've written um, for Motley Fool. And you've also spoken about on your own YouTube channel. Uh, Brian, in 2015, you weren't writing. And then you then went into Motley Fool as a novice. And then 3,000 articles later, um, YouTube channel later. You're a best-selling author who hadn't written before. So for, for those that are listening, just tell us about that journey and that transition and the nervousness, because I know, similar to me, you're a very humble guy that was going, I don't think I can do that. But somebody somewhere or two people in particular said, Brian, go, you can write that book. Go on. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, so prior to becoming a, a, a full-time writer, um, at the Motley Fool in, in 2015. Um, I was just 
a uh, someone that was extremely passionate about investing. I kind of discovered that passion for investing, I would say in about 2007, uh, 2008, which was when I was really starting to dive deep uh, into the market. Uh, at the time I was in a, I had a medical sales job um, and one side benefit of that job was that I was in my car for about 30 hours per week. Um, a lot of people would use that time to listen to like the radio or music or whatever. I used every bit of that time to listen to audiobooks and podcasts and really teach myself everything that I could learn about money um, and investing in, in finance. Uh, so I would listen to company conference calls when I was in the road. I listened to audio uh, uh, books and I would take the knowledge that I had and I would go on the Motley Fool's uh, discussion boards, which are housed by thousands of investors from around the world, and I would share uh, what I would uh, what I was learning about about companies, and I would read what other people were saying about about companies, and it was really by sharing what I learned on those discussion boards for years for free, uh, by the way, that I really um, honed my skills as both an investor um, and a writer. In 2015, um, when I approached them about starting to work for them, I had a relationship with The Motley Fool for years uh, at that point. So I wasn't someone that was completely new, just trying to throw my name into the ring and saying, hey, uh, will, you, will you give me a chance? Uh, they had seen that I was uh, writing on their discussion boards for years prior to that, and, and that's why they were willing to uh, to give me a chance. But, but you're right. When you go from... Um, managing your own portfolio and writing for uh, discussion boards to trying to create articles that are going to be read by the general uh, public, uh, it's a complete change because suddenly your grammar matters, that you spell thing right matters, the formatting uh, matters, and it can be extremely nerve-wracking when you create content that goes out to the world because you get feedback on that content, especially when you have a publisher like The Motley Fool behind you that has the resources and the readership that attracts millions uh, to to their site. So it was a very steep learning curve to go from uh, not creating content to being a content creator, but I knew that I loved the subject matter and I knew that I would uh, improve over time just purely through, uh, through uh, repetition. But if you were to tell me when I was like in college or graduating high school that I would have written a book, like I would have laughed in your face because I was a substandard in, uh, when it came to, um, to English classes, I was a substandard writer. I didn't particularly enjoy uh, a reading. Uh, and my, my, there was nothing about me that said, oh, this person loves like English. Not, not at all. Uh, so the fact that I actually end up writing a book later in life shows that I was far more passionate about the subject than the actual act of writing. Fantastic. Well, kudos to you, mate. And you've achieved it. So very, very well done. Now, of all those articles you've written and the recurring questions that come back to you, Brian, um, what do you find or what did you find that you were writing about the most and the recurring questions you, you were given? You know, you think straight off the top of your head, I used to always get asked this from investors. So when I first, when I was first hired, um, I was assigned a, a industry. So my background was in the medical device uh, world, and I specifically uh, was an expert in in, in the uh, disease state diabetes. So I knew every, basically everything you can know about uh, diabetes. Um, and when I was hired by the Motley Fool, they basically said, "Okay, great, take that expertise and write to a write articles that go into uh, biotechnology, uh, into medical devices, into insurance companies." So that was my initial area of. of 
focus. Um, and it was because of my background and it's because that's what they uh, needed. Um, over time, um, I was given more freedom to write about things that, that I saw uh, in the market and that I actually wanted to write um, uh, about. And I also would read comments from, from readers, see what they were reacting to. And from there, I gradually shifted to writing more about um, technology companies. And I had a, specific, I had a particular um, penchant for writing about companies that were healthcare companies and uh, um, technology uh, companies um, at, at, the same, at, the same, uh, at the same time. When it came to actually writing articles, we would see the statistics about what readers were reading on the themotleyfool.com, uh, and that gave us a strong pension for what they actually wanted us uh, to, to write about. So that gradually caused me to shift towards writing about uh, big technology companies. I mixed in some general uh, personal finance topics in there, such as about what is Social Security, what is Medicare. Uh, those, are, those are things that are um, very specific to, uh, to U.S. Uh, readers. And then I graduated from there to writing about just general uh, market terms and general market sentiment, like what is the S&P 500? What is the Dow Jones um, industrial average? And it was those articles that really performed well, which is one reason why I decided to write a book about it. Brilliant. Now, just gone straight into my link there and just tell me about the connection with Morgan Housel and you writing the book, the best selling book, should I say? So, so I met Morgan Housel uh, more than 15 years ago. Uh, I first learned about him because he was a writer at The Motley uh, Fool several years before, before I was, and he quickly became my favorite writer at The Motley Fool. So whenever I would go to in-person um, meetups, um, I would always seek him out. Um, and so I've, I, I've been aware of Morgan's writing skills for about 15 years now, and it's really no surprise to me that he's become um, the investing writing giant that he has uh, become at the time. However, while I was a heavy consumer of financial books, and I read, you know, read and loved books by Warren, about, by and about Warren Buffett, by uh, Peter Lynch, uh, many of those books said the same thing. Uh, they said, buy and hold the stock market, buy and hold and invest in the S&P 500. Um, over time, the S&P 500 goes up. The market returns about 10% per year annualized. And if you just buy and hold it, uh, you'll do fabulously well as an investor. I never learned while reading books, though, um, or a key question that I had when I was reading those books was, okay, I see that the market has gone up 10% per year for the last 200 years. But why has it gone up over those last 200 years? What is the reason that the S&P 500 continually hits new highs over a period of decades? And why does the market always seem to recover from these crashes uh, that, that happened? That was never explained to me. And that was the most confusing thing or the confusing question that I had about investing when I first started. It almost seemed like everyone was saying, oh, just take it on a leap of faith that the market will come back. because It's always uh, come back. And that just that just didn't make sense um, to the logical part of my brain. It would be like it would be like someone saying to me, "Oh, jump on a plane. A plane will go up in the air and it'll land safely. Why? Because it always does. And well, I'm the type of person that says, well, well, why does that happen? Why does this piece of metal float in the sky? And it's only when you understand Newton's laws and Bernoulli's principles that you can actually, for me, understand, oh, okay, that's why a plane goes up into, into the sky. Um, so that was a missing piece of my own education that I had about the market. 
And I was talking to Morgan one day about, I would love it if somebody wrote a book that explained why the stock market went up over time. And he said, well, maybe you should be the person that writes uh, that book. Um, again, I never fancied myself as an author. Um, I had been writing for The Motley Fool for several years at that time. So um, I begrudgingly decided, well, I guess I'm the person that's supposed to write this book. Fantastic reply. Uh, now, maybe you should care to just share with us, why do the markets go up despite the crashes and all the interest rates and all the unemployment and all the shenanigans that go on? Go for it. Yeah. So before we can talk about why the markets go up, let's actually talk about what the markets are. So stock market is a, is, a, is a term that lots of people throw around, but let's break those down into their individual components. So what is a stock or, or what is a share? Uh, a stock is simply fractional ownership of a corporation. So in the United States, for example, if I wanna buy a house, how do we tell who owns the house? What is the record-keeping mechanism that we have for who owns what pieces of property? Well, in the United States, we call those deeds. They're a piece of paper that says in an official record book, this person owns this piece of property. Well, the exact same principle applies to corporations. Instead of there being one deed to one piece of property, you can have thousands or millions of deeds that claim ownership of a corporation. And we call those deeds that claim ownership of a corporation shares or, or, or stock. So that's all a stock is. It's fractional ownership of a corporation. All right, how about that second word, market? What does the word market mean? Well, a market is simply a place where buyers and sellers come together to exchange goods. If you've ever been to a farmer's market, that's where food buyers go to meet with food sellers, and they just exchange money for food. Well, a stock market is the exact same thing, but instead of exchanging money for food, we exchange money for ownership in businesses. So that's what a stock market is, and stock markets have existed for hundreds of years. Over 100 years ago, in 1896, um, the way that people got information about what stocks were worth was by reading newspapers. Uh, in the United States, the most popular newspaper for uh, talking about stocks and businesses' prices was the, was the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. And there was an editor at the Wall Street Journal in 1896 that would just print these tables every day showing what a stock, what the name of the stock and what the price did. Did it go up or down? The editor's name was Charles Dow. And he wanted a way that he could take that table of information and explain to his readers what happened in the stock market that day, that week, that month, and that year. So Charles Dow got together with his business partner, whose name was Edward Jones, and they devised a solution. Uh, what they did was they added up the share price of the 12 largest, most profitable companies of the day, which were all industrial companies, and they added up their share price and then divided the, sh the number by 12. Now, when you add up a bunch of numbers and then divide by the numbers that you added up, that's called averaging them. So they gave birth to the Dow 
Jones Industrial Average. And they have been reporting that number to their readers every day since. And the Dow quickly caught on with investors because now they could look at a single number and they could get a sense for what was the mood of the markets, of the stock markets on that particular day. And how did that mood change over a week, over a month, over a year, over a decade? And we can now measure returns of the stock market in general. So that is that was the birth of the first stock market index. And since lots of other indexes have spawned up, including the S&P 500, including the FTSE, including the NASDAQ and hundreds more. Fantastic reply, Brian. Thank you. Um, so why should ordinary individuals that are not interested in the stock market be interested in the movement of markets? It's a great question. Um, be interested in the movement of markets is probably something that they shouldn't care about. But the interest in the stock market is something that they, they should. There's no better way I've found to get people interested in the stock market than by showing them um, a powerful, simple example that shows why they should. So uh, in my book, I make up a fictional character. I, I call him Aaron. Uh, and, and I say that Aaron's career uh, kicks off in 1981 in the United States. Um, Aaron is a completely typical American. He earns exactly the average salary that, uh, that an American earns, and he's also not great with money. Uh, he spends every single dollar that he earns. Uh, however, Aaron made one good financial decision in his life. When his career started, uh, he signed up for this brand new thing, which was called a 401k, which is a tax advantage savings uh, investment vehicle account uh, in the United States that helps people pay for their retirements. So Aaron put $400 per month into the U.S. stock market starting in 1981, and then he forgot about it. He never thought about it or looked at the statements or paid attention to the stock market ever again. Now, fast forward 40 years, Aaron's, Aaron works his successful career. He continues to invest that $400 per month into the market, but that is it. Now, he goes to retire in 2020, and he looks at his statement for the very first time, and the total balance that Aaron has accumulated over his 40-year career is $3.013 million. So Aaron's $400 per month investment turned into $3 million during his working career, even though he knew nothing about the stock market and didn't pay attention to it at all. Now, for quick math, Aaron put into his investing accounts 192000 Now, that's a lot of money, but that's nowhere close to $3 million. So the delta between those two numbers is the stock market, is the power of the stock market. So that is why ordinary people should care about the stock market because it empowers ordinary people with ordinary incomes to build extraordinary wealth. Fantastic. Thank you there, Brian. Now, one of the things you've touched on there with Aaron was the fact that he just bought into the market, compounded his returns, and just ignored it essentially for 40 years and then came back to a lottery win, essentially. Um, we've got a situation, unfortunately, where we're going back to the 1940s and individuals were holding shares for 7.1 years. In the 70s, it was 5.3 years. 2000s, 1.3 years. And the recent research I've seen is down to now 
5.5 months. How do we get individuals to just step away from the noise and invest like Aaron in your book or like you and I and just hold a stock longer term and therefore increase our chances of better returns? Yeah, investors today are extremely spoiled. It has never been easier for us to buy and sell and make investments. You can literally do so for zero dollars today. Uh, when I first started investing, and that was this was only 20 years ago, uh, I had to pay $10 per trade, which at the time was the lowest it had ever uh, been. So in the 1990s, it used to cost 50 or $100 just to make one transaction, just to buy or sell a security. Now we can do that for free from our phones. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, it was really hard to get information about uh, investments. Um, you weren't sent SEC filings. There wasn't a way to quickly look them up. You, you couldn't get on investor conference calls, let alone get transcripts for those calls. And it was really hard to keep up with the news about, about companies. Now we can get all that information for free, instantaneously sorted for us on our, our phone. So that's the upside. It's never been easier uh, to invest. The downside to that, to what's happened to investors is the friction that was that existed before uh, to investing is now gone, and it is easier than ever uh, to look down at your phone and make an emotional decision and to trade. And we have seen as commissions has gone down, as the news has gotten uh, quicker, and as inf and investors have more information, that people are trading far more often than at any time um, in, in history. So the way that you as an investor can kind of rise above that and really take advantage of the long-term compounding effect uh, as an investor is to do what Aaron did. Uh, just set something up, a buy and hold, a long-term investing strategy, and then pay as little attention to it uh, as, as you possibly uh, uh, can. That is one way that is one way to avoid the temptation uh, to trade. Uh, the other way to avoid the temptation to trade is to study markets and study market history. Um, if you study market history, the undeniable long-term trend is that buy and hold investing works. Period, full stop, end of story. However, there have been plenty of periods in U.S. stock market history and in global stock market history when you went years, when buy and hold was not rewarded for years. Uh, valuations uh, came down, uh, prices uh, held steady. I mean, in the United States, for example, I think the stock market between 2000 and 2009 was essentially flat. So you had a 10-year period of, of volatility, but you as an investor uh, made next to no money. That assumes that you bought everything in 2000 and held everything to 2009. Now, if you bought and hold, bought, bought continuously, you dollar cost average, uh, you did earn a, a positive return, but there's no doubt that there have been periods when the returns that you earn from the market are, are very, uh, very low. You have to know that and be aware of that going in, that the market, if you pay attention to it, will test your resolve and test your patience like nothing else uh, you, you've ever done. So the only way that I know of to kind of combat that is to study market history, 
Understand that volatility and low returns over periods of time are completely normal, but to have faith that over the long term, buy and hold does work because it has worked for centuries. Thank you for the reply. And the, I really appreciate what you just said there. I think essentially for me, it's that it's going back to what you've said so many times in your interviews and articles and your YouTube channel, uh, Brian, about managing the emotional side of it. You've got to have your investing strategies got to override your emotions, you know. And um, I, I saw a quote you put together from uh, your good friend, Tom Engel, and he's, and he's basically saying, one thing that has always been present over my investing lifetime is the overabundance of noise. <laughs> so you've covered it there. But what is the best advice for people just to tune out and just, to, you know, not be reacting to the market, that frantic trading that we're seeing, you know, as a recurring distracting effect to people's wealth. The only answer I know there would be to know yourself, study your own investing behavior. Uh, if you invested, if you were investing prior to, uh, to 2020, how did you behave during March of 2020 when markets around the world were crashing as, co as COVID went from this fringe thing that was happening in a faraway land to, oh my God, this is changing, uh, changing the, the, the world. What was your behavior during that period of economic and emotional stress? Um, if you were able to tune out the noise, uh, continue buying, and hey, if, if you got excited by the idea of investing because stocks were, were plunging, that is a great sign that you have the emotional makeup uh, to be um, an investor. On the flip side, if you were looking at that, uh, if you sold your portfolio, if you were scared, uh, if you weren't willing to make uh, an investments, that should tell you that you need to set up systems to prevent you from your, your, yourself. Thankfully, it's never been easier to do that. Um, this is why this is why investing in 401ks through your employer or setting up simple dollar cost averaging plans works so well. Is it because it removes your decision making and it removes your emotions from the process? So, um, so if that study your own investing behavior, how you actually acted during those periods, and if you acted um, emotionally then the odds are extremely high that you will act very emotionally the next time uh, we face a, a, a financial crisis. And I can guarantee you, guarantee you, we will face another crisis uh, where the markets plunge at some point um, in, in, in the future. So the time to prepare and the time to protect yourself from yourself, from your future self, from those emotions uh, is before you experience them. And again, dollar cost averaging into, um, into index funds is just such a no brainer, easy, free way to do just that. I think you might have just covered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway now, Brian. Out of the many, in your view, potential million dollar mistakes, which are the ones that we should almost easily avoid? Well, the biggest mistake, I guess I should say, um, that, I, that I didn't cover before, the biggest mistake is, is, is not investing, period. Uh, this is something that so many people 
uh, put off, uh, especially those that are young, because they they have so many demands for their time and their money, and they're often not making a lot of money when they're when they're right out of college. Um, they want to start a family. They wanna they want to get married. Uh, they want to go on vacation. Uh, they want to buy a house. All of those things cost quite a bit of money. So it can be a big financial stress for them to voluntarily give up a portion of their income uh, today uh, for the hope and the promise that they'll grow their wealth uh, significantly uh, over time. So the number one biggest mistake that most investors or most people make when it comes to investing is simply not starting investing. Um, but I promise you, once you go through that semi-painful step of just getting that ball rolling, starting to put money into, into the market, your lifestyle will instantaneously adjust uh, to your slightly lower uh, income rate, and you will all but forget that you're making those investments. And your future self will really thank you that you, that you did that. So if you haven't started investing, please just get the ball rolling. Start even if it's with a small amount of money. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to throw this question in straight away now because you've just said that. Um, you recently wrote about the ultimate luxury. Um, please can you share with us and our listeners what that is, please. So when I first started investing, uh, the thing that I was after was the same thing that many other people are after. The th I used to believe that the reason that you wanted to get rich was so that you could have a big house, a really fancy car, you could take vacations, you could have butlers uh, waiting on you, and you could just afford all of the luxuries uh, of life. I can tell you that I have since uh, come to realize that the real luxury that money affords you is complete control over your calendar. You really want, the thing that you really want is the ability to wake up every day and say, I can work on whatever I want for as long as I want with whoever I want, and we do so on my terms. And if I don't like the terms, or I don't like what I'm working on, or I don't like the people that I'm working with, I can at any time choose to end that relationship and work on something completely else. So what you essentially really actually want isn't fancy things. You, what you really are after, or should be after, is financial freedom. And the only expression of financial freedom that I know is, a, is complete control over every aspect of your calendar. Fantastic reply. Thank you, Brian. Now, so in order to get to that ultimate luxury, we need to be able to identify some of those potential significant winners early. Now, you've often spoken about counter-positioning in some of the conversations that you've had previously. I'm talking now about Netflix versus Blockbuster, Amazon versus Barnes & Noble, Tesla versus Ford, and NVIDIA versus Intel. How do we as ordinary investors um, go about identifying those individual companies that could create significant wealth by counter-positioning, doing something slightly different and eating the incumbent's lunch effectively. Sure. So this this comes from Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett has a quote, which I'm going to butcher because I don't have it in front of me, but it's essentially when you're analyzing a business, the, the thing that isn't matter is how much it's going to change the world or how much it's going to grow. The thing that actually matters is the competitive advantage and the durability of that competitive advantage. It's essentially his moat metaphor. It's what can one company do that other companies can't. There are several different sources that a company can have as, as a moat. We talked about the network effect uh, previously. It could be a brand. It could be low-cost production. It could be switching costs. There's several categories. 
One that I have recently uh, d discovered or, or been, been made aware of is, is a concept called counter positioning. And this is when one company adopts a differentiated business model or a different way of charging customers for prices or services when compared to the incumbents. And if a company can adopt a new business model, that itself becomes a competitive advantage. Let's talk about a simple one that we talked that you just mentioned was Blockbuster versus Netflix. At the start, Blockbuster and Netflix both did the exact same thing. They bought DVDs and they rented them to customers, except for they had completely different business models. Blockbuster's successful business model for years was to build these stores, was to have a big selection of, of movies, and Blockbuster actually made the majority of its profits off of late fees. So it was customers being inactive, coming into the store late, and getting charged extra penalties uh, for, for having a, a, late, a late rental return. Netflix took that business model and completely flipped it on its head. So while it was renting out DVDs to customers, rather than doing it with physical stores, it did them through the mail, which dramatically lowered its cost basis, uh, its cost. The other thing that it did was it charged customers a monthly subscription fee and they could watch as many DVDs as, as they wanted to. So same business, customers get the same end, end product, but the business models were completely different. This blew a hole in Blockbuster's uh, business uh, model because Netflix came along and they promised lower prices to consumers and the exact same product or, or, or service. So for Blockbuster to compete with Netflix, they would have had to say, our business model is outdated, we're closing down all of our stores, and we're going to shift completely into the DVD by rental uh, uh, business, which would have completely eliminated the advantage that they had built up over a period of decades. Now, could they have made that decision? Yes, but that would be an extremely, extremely painful decision for the managers of those companies to make. So when you see a small company that is approaching a same industry with a differentiated business model, they're not protected by brand, they're not protected by switching costs, they're not protected by low-cost production, but one that they, way that they can protect themselves from another is through counter-positioning, which essentially means a differentiated business model that would cause incumbents to give up profits in order to successfully compete. Thank you. I love that response. And and I think if I remember rightly as well, that um, Blockbusters, were they given the opportunity to buy Netflix at the very, very early stage? Yes, they were. I, I believe that I believe that uh, they, they there's lots of stories like that, like um, Yahoo was given the opportunity to buy Google for like a million dollars and they decided not to. Uh, Blockbuster was given the opportunity to buy Netflix uh, for, uh, for a few million dollars and they decided uh, uh, not to. So looking backwards, looking backwards, it of course seems obvious that that was a massive missed opportunity. But if you were there at the time, and Blockbuster had you know billions of sales, billions of profits, and Netflix was this tiny little thorn uh, with an interesting uh, business model. So it would have taken actually a lot of foresight by the management team to, to make that a move. But you've seen this, that same story play out again and again and again in industries where uh, a small upstart 
with less resources than a big incumbent uh, succeeds in part because of this differentiated business model. So if you find that happening in an industry, pay attention to it. I was seamlessly to my next question. You spoke about the characteristics traits of, of the significant winners that you've had historically, Brian. Um, and I'm trying to just pull something out of you here to help our, our readers with regards to any sort of recent stock or purchase you've made in the past six months or year that have got characteristics that you think long term now, this company's counter positioning um, regarding what other companies are doing and therefore could be a significant long term winner or long term in your portfolio as a potential winner. Do you have one that you could share with us, please? I haven't made any purchases in the last six months that I think would match that that um, that counter positioning um, uh, uh, a criteria. So nothing is coming to mind uh, there for me. I've actually been fairly um, inactive with my stock purchases over the last couple of of months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have more let my portfolio. So I built my portfolio up at, over a period of of ten plus of ten plus years. Uh, I've made a significant amount of investments, and at this point, the the gains that I have on my winners, the gains that I have on my mega winners, dwarf the amount of capital that I'm putting into my portfolio um, to to buy a new new position. So it's possible that the that the stocks that I've bought in the last couple of years could grow to become major positions for me in time. But remember at the top of the show I basically said that I have a very strong bias against selling against selling because I don't want to miss out. I don't want to sell a future mega winner early. Uh, for that reason, my my portfolio is a lot like a cruise ship at this point where I can kind of steer it, but any steering that I do would take a long time for it to actually uh, impact the, the position of, uh, of, of my portfolio. Um, I do have my eyes on some up-and-coming companies that I haven't bought yet, but that could be there. Uh, one that I'm particularly interested in is a company called Clear Secure. Uh, the ticker symbol there, ticker symbol there is Y-O-U. Um, I think they trade on on the NASDAQ. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar, if you've ever been to an airport, they have these, um, at when you're going through um, security check, um, this company called Clear Secure, you basically go to them and they will verify your identity the same way that a driver's license or a passport does um, uh, in, in the United uh, States. So they have these terminals that you go through and you can breeze through airport security at a much faster rate by signing up with this company. One reason why I'm attracted uh, to, to this business is I don't see the ability for many of these companies to exist if for no other reason than think about airport security. Like how much physical space is there at an airport security for these companies to take up space? Um, there's not a lot. So there could maybe be one or perhaps two players in this market, and I don't even see a second player in this market uh, over time. Um, Moreover, because they're getting into the, the identity uh, market, they have plans to take this technology and use it in airports, uh, to use it in um, stadiums and security. They have plans to use it in businesses. Um, they could use it in hotels. So any place that you go where identity, where having your identi identity uh, verified could be a potential market uh, for, for uh, this business. So this is one that I have not purchased yet, but I am certainly watching with a close eye. Thank you very much for sharing that. Sounds like a very, very interesting um, stock to actually research for our our listeners, Brian. Thank you. Now, I've got one final question for you because I'm conscious of the, of the time and you've covered this, but I just want you to just give a, an overview because it's in, it's in your book and people need to go out and buy the book as well. Um, 
What are your main rules, Brian, for successful long-term investing? Oh, there's a lot of them uh, because, and again, the rules that I have in, in my book are mostly about reminders to myself uh, for for to avoid mistakes that I have made uh, in, in the past. Uh, but a few of them uh, that come to mind, we, as I said before, is first off, get started. Um, the way that wealth uh, has been built um, by, by many uh, successful families, by many successful people, is by starting off with a small investment carefully selecting what you put that money into and then consistently adding to that investment and growing it uh, over, over time. So no matter your net worth, no matter your financial position, start investing, even if it's with a very tiny um, thing. Uh, rule number two would be educate yourself. Educate yourself. It's never been easier or, or, or cheaper than it is today to educate yourself about investing, what the stock market is, and you can do so for free on basically any platform that you want. You can get good investing in, in, in um, um, information and education on YouTube. You can get it on TikTok. You can get it on podcasts. You can get it on blogs. So whatever medium you are currently using to consume content, seek out on that medium high-quality information about investing. And then third and finally, I would say the most important thing that you can do with investing is develop a long-term investing horizon, a long-term mindset. Um, anything can and will happen in the stock market in a short period of time. And it is wealth is truly built when you buy and hold for long periods of time. So measure your results and measure your returns over the appropriate time period in the stock market. That is measured in decades. It's not measured in days. Fantastic. I love that response, Brian. Thank you ever so much. Um, that's my final question to you. Uh, other than asking you to tell our listeners where they can find you, Brian, YouTube, your website, blogs, etc. please. Yep, you can find me on most of the major platforms. I can tell you I'm most I'm most active on X, aka Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I'm I'm Brian Feraldi there, and I, I post um, videos on YouTube as well. And that is that is my name, uh, Brian Feraldi, is the name of the channel. Thank you ever so much, ladies and gents. That was Brian Feraldi, the financial educator, YouTuber, and best-selling author of the book Why Does the Stock Market Go Up. Brian, thank you ever so much for being with me on the Investing Matters podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Take care and God bless you, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. It was great. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.